Uh, today we um, are going to be doing our service very differently than we normally do it. Normally I would go right into reading the passage that we're going to study and we go through it verse by verse, but today we're entering into a, a new book of the Bible, the book of James. We just finished Jonah, which was a great, great study. Um, and we saw a lot in Jonah about Jesus. And now we're going to go to the New Testament book of James. And uh, just happened, uh, we call it God incidences, not coincidences, that I received in, uh, in an email uh, invitation to look at a number of videos that were done to teach James, to teach the book of James. So I thought I'd use one of those as an introduction to the book. Um, this gives a pretty good background of uh, the book of James. And, um, and then I'll, I'll share on the, the uh, first verse, first and yeah, just verse one. We're only gonna do one verse today, the introduction to James, verse one. So are we ready? Okay, go ahead and roll that video. What would you have done? Christianity was at a precipice. Its very existence seemed to be in danger. I was desperate to take care of Jesus' precious bride, the church, but had no answers. I went down on my knees, calloused from prayer, and begged Holy Spirit to give me clarity on what to do. And he did. James was written as a guide to help Jewish Christians navigate cultures with completely different social norms and beliefs than those that existed in Israel. It is applicable in today's world where social norms and beliefs often differ from those of Christianity. Holy Spirit assured me that what I saw as a problem was just the normal progression of events that had been ordered by God eons ago. He gave me the solution of a weapon of spiritual warfare that would be the most powerful weapon ever used. I was going to be one of the first of many people to wield this weapon, so I needed to be a good example. What was the weapon? A simple letter. For the first decade of its existence, the church was comprised almost entirely of Jews who followed Jesus. We knew the Old Testament scriptures, and we were able to participate in most of the benefits of the complex Jewish social structure. Even though many of us lived outside of Jerusalem, everyone relied on the direction of the apostles and Jewish leaders, many of whom lived in Jerusalem. In the second decade of its existence, the church added many non-Jews to its membership. Peter's conversion of Cornelius started the change, and Paul's preaching increased the speed at which non-Jews were added. As the leader of the church in Jerusalem, I saw things differently than most. I saw that our efforts with the Jews had reached a point of diminishing returns. We had saturated the market most of the Jews who might become Christians had already converted, and the rest were resistant, if not antagonistic, to hearing our message. 
I saw that the Jerusalem church leaders were losing their ability to influence and control the gospel message as Christianity went to non-Jews living further away from Israel. I saw that the Jerusalem church members were financially impoverished and in desperate need of help. It was the year 49 AD, and we leaders had just finished the council at Jerusalem where we decided that non-Jewish Christians did not have to follow the laws of Moses, especially the rite of circumcision. Holy Spirit revealed to me that this was the turning point for Christianity. No longer would we leaders at Jerusalem control the content and message of the gospel. No longer would we direct the daily lives of so many Christians. In order for the church to grow, it would have to be done in such a way that each church would be independent and responsible for itself. In your terms, we needed to go from a centralized organization to a decentralized organization, a more flattened leadership model. That would allow the church to grow rapidly, but it would come at the cost of more chaos, more church failures, and less control over the content of the gospel message. I was old and tired, and I was more than happy to give up control. But I was scared for the welfare of my flock. Not my flock in Jerusalem, but for the worldwide flock of Christians. How would they flourish without the constant leadership of the apostles and Jerusalem leaders? The Holy Spirit laughed when he heard my concern. When you hear Holy Spirit laugh, you know everything is well. He pointed out that the apostles and leaders were old and dying off anyway. They were scattered as they went to other countries spreading the gospel. He showed me that the old way was finishing and a new way was beginning. Not only would the church grow by converting non-Jews, but the leadership of the church would move to local leaders guided through written letters and accounts which he, the Holy Spirit, would inspire. This was not plan B. This was the progression of plan A that had been in effect for eons. Holy Spirit told me that I was to write a letter giving necessary counsel for all future churches and Christians. In one short scroll, I was to pass along everything I thought important. Being a practical and not a highly educated man, I had no choice but to pass along the things I knew had been important to the lives of the people in my flock. I wasn't qualified to address the new problems that would arise as Christianity spread, just problems that I had been addressing as leader of the church in Jerusalem. As I started writing the letter, it became obvious that I had to write in generalities. I did not have the ability to address little details or to talk about things that were obvious. What should I include? What was important to write about? And what should be excluded? Where should I start? One thing I knew from past experiences was that most problems had a common root, and it could be described in one word, faith and faithfulness. Wait a minute, you say, that's two words. I said the secret is one word, and that is true.
In the Hebrew language, the word faith and faithfulness were the same word. In other words, faith did not mean mental assent, like many in your culture take it to be. Faith meant acting in accordance with your belief. If that causes you a lot of angst, perhaps you should stop and ponder for a while why it does. Paul and I were not in disagreement about the subject of faith. We just define faith differently than many in your culture. When I wrote faith without works is dead, I was not making a complex theological argument. I was saying faith and faithfulness are the same thing. You cannot have one without the other. I was actually incredulous that people would think such a thing was possible. I think a good analogy for faith and works is what I wrote about in my letter. You can find it in chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Perhaps I could have been more politically correct by saying lifeless instead of dead, but the meaning would have been the same. Faith without works is lifeless. Another reason many of you are misled about the meaning of faith is because of the way your Bibles are printed. The chapter headings many of you have were not in the original text. When you read the famous chapter of Hebrews 11, you might have seen it as the faith chapter. However, it is much better described as the faith in action chapter. The whole chapter is about how people of the Bible put their faith into action. None of them could have imagined a faith consisting only of mental assent. What sorts of things could you, your family members, and your church do to put your faith into action? In my little letter, I mentioned three types of things. Those evidenced by deeds, those evidenced by conduct, and those evidenced by speech. Here are some of the things I mentioned in my little letter. For faith evidenced by deeds, I wrote, you believe that there is one God. That's good. The demons also believe and tremble. But don't you know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son on the altar? See how faith worked with his works? and by works his faith was perfected? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how a man is justified by works and not by faith only? Likewise, wasn't Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. For faith evidenced by conduct, I wrote, but if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and breaks just one point, he is guilty of all. And for faith evidenced by speech, I wrote several nuggets. Therefore, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And the tongue is a fire, a world of evil. As one of our body members, the tongue corrupts the whole body and sets on fire the course of our lives and itself is set on fire of hell. For every kind of animal and bird and snake and things in the sea are tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil full of deadly poison. What sorts of things can you, your family, and your church do to express your faith by your deeds, conduct, and speech? Believe that God will answer your prayers. Don't just read the scriptures, but do what they say. Help widows and orphans. Clothe and feed people who need it without regard to judging why they need it. Pray for each other. As you can tell, I am no great theologian. Thankfully, that is not what Holy Spirit trained me to be nor needed for me to be. I just had to have the experiences and desire to guide my flock and all future Christians with a little practical wisdom by the use of the most powerful weapon ever devised, a letter. and an introduction to the book. Um, James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So he's started by describing the conditions there in Jerusalem. The Jews were increasingly resistant to the gospel. They were no longer gaining ground there in Jerusalem, whereas the church outside of Jerusalem was growing rapidly. But, and the church in Jerusalem was impoverished, was having a hard time meeting the needs of all, all the widows. It was a time for a change. And he described how they had a top-down leadership. Everyone came to the apostles. We see that in Acts chapter 15 for decisions to be made for the church that was spreading throughout the world. But as the apostles grew older, they needed to change the style. And so what they did was to choose to move to a type of leadership that the synagogue had. The synagogue had elders. And the big difference is, in the synagogues, they had a leader of the elders called the ruler of the synagogue. You read that in scripture. But in the church, it was the first among equals. Somebody that was equal to all the other elders, but helped compile a consensus as to how to move forward, a consensus as to what the Holy Spirit was saying to the leaders, to the elders. So they, they had to make this transition, but in making the transition, they needed guidelines. It would be so easy for a distant church to get off track, get away from the pure gospel, and it happened. There were a number of heresies that grew up in the second and third centuries. So they needed something to keep them on track, and that was the written letters. And James was the first to write those letters. 
the probably the first book written that we have in our New Testament. James is a, a unique addition to the New Testament, just as we saw Jonah was to the Old Testament. The book speaks very little about the doctrine of salvation, and its theme is, is mostly focused on how to live out our faith. What James was concerned about in, in the churches is that the people who understood the gospel lived out the gospel with their lives. Some have seen it as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And in, if you download the PDF, I have a whole page on the parallels of what James said with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and in fact, next Sunday morning in the Bible study, that's, that's going to be our Bible study. We're just going to look at the parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and what James had written. Which James wrote this letter? There were two prominent Jameses in the New Testament, the brother of John the Beloved, James and John, the sons of thunder, and James, the brother of Jesus. Well, the problem of the picking the first James, James the Apostle, is he was martyred in A.D. 44. Um, shortly before most commentators believe this book was written, somewhere between 44 and 49 A.D. And that leaves us with the Lord's half-brother. He was the leader of the early church. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we find out that Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. His devotion to God and his relationship with Jesus propelled him to become the leader or the first among equals of the early church. Um, tradition tells us that he was, his nickname was Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. He loved the scripture he often cited the Old Testament. He will cite the Old Testament four times in this letter and refer to it or allude to it another 40 times in this short letter. And another reason we know that it, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, is because when you look at the language that in Acts chapter 15, when James came down with the ruling from the church for the Gentiles, you'll see similar words in the book of James. He used very similar languages. So we're fairly certain, uh, I would say we are certain, that this was written by Jesus' half-brother. Early church history tells of an attempt to kill James uh, by pushing him off a high point of the temple. Somehow he survived that fall, uh, but then the Jews beat him to death as he was forgiven them. He doesn't introduce himself here in this first verse as an apostle. You know, you might, a lot of the letters begin with Paul, the apostle of Christ. Or, uh, but here in this letter, he says, he's the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, servant, that's the title that Moses gives himself. Daniel in the Old Testament describes himself as a servant of God. Even Jesus referred to himself as God's servant because he always did the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus said, we're not only servants of God, but just as he came to serve us, we are to serve others. 
Jesus also taught that the greatest among us is the servant of all. Are you a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's an honorable title. If the answer is yes, then you'll want to do what the Word of God and the Holy Spirit prompts you to do regardless of the desires of your old nature. Does James' humble description of himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ contradict Jesus' statement that you can't serve two masters? Well, this is an exception because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Holy Spirit, the Word made flesh, which is Jesus, and God the Father are all in complete unity. James was serving them by writing this letter to help us understand what it looks like to let Christ live in us. The early church needed doctrine, which will, will come in the letters from Paul and the, and the Gospels, but James knew right faith, true faith, would manifest itself in righteous behavior. His teaching Ungodly behavior would help these young churches to know if they were walking in the flesh or living in the spirit. Some people argue that, that Paul and uh, James are at odds because Paul focuses on faith and James focuses on works. A famous commentator, Mortier, explains to Paul, the question was, how is salvation experienced? And the answer is, by faith alone. To James, the question was, how is this true and saving faith recognized? And the answer, by its fruits. So they're not at all in conflict, rather they're expressing the answer to different questions. It's clear to see when carefully looking at both authors, they have the same faith and the same expectations of what that faith should produce in our lives. James is describing what Paul referred to as walking by the Spirit and being a new creation in Christ. The rest of that first verse says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we start right off with the difficulty of who is this letter written to? Nine of the dispersed tribes had long since melted into other cultures. Many no longer uh, mentioned their, their, maintain, I'm sorry, their Jewish identities. Jews, meaning mostly the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and part of Levi, had more people living outside of Israel than inside the land. Does James mean it's only for those Jews that are outside of Israel and not for the people in Jerusalem? In Acts chapter 26, verse 7, Paul testifies before the ruler Agrippa that the 12 tribes lived in hope of the resurrection, but that he was being persecuted by the Jews. So what does Paul mean by the 12 tribes? What does James mean by the 12 tribes. He seems to be contrasting the people of faith with the Jews who had rejected Jesus. He seems to be uh, making in one both Jew and Gentile who have faith in Christ. Did James understand what the Apostle Paul 
taught that they are not Israelites who are descended from Israel, but the people of faith, those who live by the faith of their father Abraham. Again, Motier explains, he says, our Lord Jesus chose out 12 apostles and looked forward to the day of his own glory when they would sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. In doing this, he was not creating a new Israel, either alongside or replacing the old. He was leading the Israel of the old covenant on into its full intended reality as the Israel under the new covenant, the apostolic people of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who Paul calls the Israel of God. In a word, Israel is the name of the people of Jesus. It's the true and undeniable title of his church. Because of this, Paul teaches that Christians are children of Abraham and that Abraham is our father. He doesn't qualify this relationship by saying, for example, that we can think of ourselves as if we're children of Abraham, or that we might find it helpful to draw an analogy between ourselves and those who are Abraham's children, or anything like that. He asserts a fact that those who have put their faith in Jesus for salvation are Abraham's children and the Israel of God. Peter called those in the dispersion God's elect who have been sprinkled with blood of Jesus Christ, making them his brothers. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Or as Paul explained in Romans chapter 11, we Gentiles have been grafted into the Jewish trunk. Followers of Jesus live as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, whether we're in Jerusalem or in Sedona. We're not at home, for our home is where Jesus is, New Jerusalem. Remember that the word Israel, the name Israel means those who prevail with God. We are God's Israel. We are those 12 tribes in dispersion. We do not replace physical Israel, but we're heirs of the promise and the people of God. So all of this is to help us understand this letter is not just to Jews who happen to be outside of Israel, as some interpret it. It's written to the people of faith. Like the Jews of faith before us, we are the persecuted because we are not of this world. We escape the slavery of sin. We were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and we're following our Lord through the wilderness of life. And the battle to enter our promised land we fight daily. We struggle to not give in to idolatry and the pagan gods all around us to give ourselves wholly to worship and obey the Lord our God. James understood these parallels and he calls the church the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's also a warning in this prestigious title. The nine northern tribes turned to idolatry and blended in with the world. The tribe of Dan was one of the first to fall into paganism. They didn't take the land that was allotted to them by Joshua and settled for something easier to conquer. They didn't act according to what they professed they believed. They forgot the words of Moses, just as we forget the words of Jesus. And they failed to act on what they said they believed. 
true faith, as the video showed us, results in faithfulness. In Greek, they're the same word, faith and faithfulness. Do our deeds, our conduct, and our speech demonstrate that our faith is more than an idea? James is getting is, is going to challenge us to, to do what we, we were in, in, encouraged to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And my computer glitched out, so I got to go to my notes. So James understood those parallels. That's why he calls us the tribes of Israel. My prayer for us as we journey through the book of James is that we all examine our own deeds, our conduct, and our speech to see if our faith is truly alive. We're not going to go down the road of, of condemnation. That's not necessary. But we are going to see if our faith is living and real and active. And where we fall short from applying what we believe to our daily life. The apostles are not physically with us. But what they gave us, what they knew would keep us, on the right track is the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit in us. We can be more than conquerors through Him who loved us if we will follow Him and His Word. Amen? Amen. So we've started this journey. I hope you'll join us for the whole thing. And if you're a guest with us, you can, you can join us online. Um, YouTube or the link that's in your bulletin there as we go through this book of James to see if we're truly born again, if we're truly following. We need that assurance of salvation. We need to know in our hearts, yes, I am a born again child of God. God has changed my life. And where there's areas where we haven't changed, that's our opportunity to let him work in us and change us. One of the big areas um, in the video that he mentioned was when we get to the power of the tongue. He says it's one of the last things to be converted, and it's the hardest to be converted. So we're going to hit that in chapter 3. So I, I hope you'll look forward to uh, going through James with us and see what God will do in our lives through this letter that's meant to keep us on track. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?